For you must know that we poets cannot walk the path of beauty without Eros joining our company and even making himself our leader. Do you see then that we poets can be neither wise nor honorable, that we necessarily go astray, that we necessarily remain dissolute adventurers of emotion? The masterly demeanor of our style is a lie and a folly, our fame and our honor a sham, the confidence accorded us by our public utterly ridiculous, the education of the populace and of the young by means of art, a risky enterprise that ought not to be allowed. So full Plato. Yeah. You went full Plato. Yeah. This is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. It illuminates illuminate the face. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my Valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast of this with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. everybody. Welcome back to the Grand Podcast Abyss. I'm your co-host, John Pastelli, and I'm here with the Bohemian music conductor, Sam Worthington. How are you doing today, Sam? Oh, I'm doing well. What a wonderful compliment, John. And you know, of course, that's a reference to the ancestry of the character of the novella that we're going to discuss today, and which I personally relate to because I do have some Slavic musical DNA that accounts for a quarter a quarter of my blood and to which I assign the more passionate influences mm-hmm. and flowering of genetics. And we are going to talk about this character today. And I wish it was simply about bohemian music conductors. And I wish that everybody could go out and see the, the band and do a little dance and return to their heteronormative, appropriately aged couples at night um, in this conservative worldview, this perfect balance of eros and disciplined societal norms that, you know, mankind has sought after in various forms for many thousand years. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about its utter violation and how that was examined and reconciled through the subjectivity of one artist, one writer, in the classic novella text from Thomas Mann, Death in Venice. So, John, what has been your history with Death in Venice? Yeah, so I first read it, um, the first time I read it was was actually not, um, I, was, I was well into adulthood. It was, it was about 10 years ago when I was finishing up my doctoral dissertation which was about modernist fiction and aestheticism, the art for art's sake movement. And I knew this was a text, even though I was writing about English language literature, I knew that this was a text in German that had influentially addressed this theme of art and decadence and forbidden sexuality and some of the similar themes I was seeing in books I was writing about, like Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man or Wilde's A Picture of Dorian Gray. So I read it first then and was very impressed by it, struck by it. It's a very kind of even in translation, and I've I've read two translations now. Alas, we don't speak German. You don't speak German, right? Yet. 
<laughs> well, that's actually an amends for when you asked me if I spoke Russian. And I, listening back to that episode, I wish I would have said yet. Right. So I, I used this opportunity when you asked me if I speak German. Yes. To display my German. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Gracias. Um, <laughs> so, so I had read it, uh, and it's uh, the first time I read it was in the old uh, Helen Lowe Porter translation. She's been disparaged in the same way that Constance Garnett, as a Russian translator, has been disparaged as. Uh, That's sexist, by the way. I actually believe that. I think there's a lot of. Uh, um, you know, these high-minded ladies were in, were in over their head or something. But I think their translations are Like are she's fine. autistic or something. She was just, just yeah. translated a bunch of Russian novels like an autistic person. Right. You know? <laughs> right. It's, it's well, really and they're, it's demeaning. And they're, cri- they're criticized for being too stiff. Like they're these right. blue, blue stocking, right. purse-lipped prudes yeah. or something. Um, I'll, get a, I'll get a poster of Constant Garnett yeah. you know, <laughs> hanging on my wall. People right. could buzz off right. as far as I'm concerned. So I think you're perfectly fine if you want to read Helen Lowport translation which is the first one i read and it's an incredibly like so much of thomas mann um monumentally eloquent text paragraphs like marble blocks you know piled up into a temple um and i was struck by its reflections on art and life and then i i was inspired to read it again recently um due to i've been thinking about some of the themes we talked about in our fukuyama episode about uh, modernism and fascism mm-hmm. and uh, the critique of liberalism. And I just re- happened to come across, um, just in the neighborhood in one of those little free libraries, I came across the uh, volume, you know, F or G or whatever it was of the mm-hmm. n- new Norton anthology of world literature. And I was struck by it, uh, how powerfully it begins. It begins with Heart of Darkness, Death in Venice, The Dead, The Metamorphosis, all these world-shaking novellas of the early modernist period. There so, was something in the water in that yeah, time. Yeah. Well, cholera, as it turns out. Well, <laughs> we'll learn more as, as we get into the plot. But, yeah. <laughs> but metaphorically, there was something in the water. Yes. Maybe it was all rock and no water. But there, <laughs> maybe it was a stony, a stony hard thing. <laughs> a, modernist, a modernist texture. But there seemed to be, and you're fascinated with this, period and you wrote your dissertation on this period and hell i don't know you might style yourself as a follower of these artists and in many with, ways, within yeah. a lineage you might yeah. self you might self-reflexively place yourself within that tradition i don't know i've never asked you no <laughs> but if i if i were writing a extensive criticism on your work i might i might make that placement so what is it about these artists in this time that is singular and interesting and endlessly generative I think this is the moment, the turn of the 20th century, even more than romanticism in the, you know, 100 years before, which sort of has this reputation. But it's the turn of the 20th century where literature and the arts really become self-conscious. They really begin to ask themselves, what is the role of the artist in society? Can we take, is this something we can take for granted I think most prior ages in some way took it for granted that the artist had some kind of assigned role. Mm-hmm. Was it the, you know, the court mm-hmm. or was writing for the market? And then with Romanticism, you start to get the, the artistic rebellion, but there it's very simple. The artist is the rebel, the satanic Promethean figure. It's very self-congratulatory. Mm-hmm. And this, in this moment, you find writers and artists saying, well, hold on. 
maybe it's not that simple. Maybe we're set apart, but what are the ethics of that? Um, what are the what are what are the ethics of of literary and artistic form? This is where form becomes self conscious in the right, arts. Where, right. Where painters, for instance, say, "I'm not going to paint uh, an attempt at a three dimensional representation of the world. I'm going to uh, focus on the fact that these are just shapes and forms on a flat surface. Right. Um, that they're self consciously <clears throat> engaged in a craft. Yeah. And then. You could scrutinize the craft as a part of the craft. Right, exactly. This is where you get metafiction, metatextuality. Metamucil. Metamucil. <laughs> <laughs> Around this time, I think they got the patent. It's possible. Um, and so this this rigorous ethical self-questioning of art is what really fascinates me about this period. Well, and I, would you even call him a protagonist, Aschenbach? See, protagonist, it's a word that everybody knows, but for me, when I say protagonist, it's like it doesn't adequately apply to any of the protagonists. It's a weird <laughs> word for me. Right, yeah. It's not enough or it's too much or it doesn't fit or... Yeah. Well, maybe I, Ulysses is a is a protagonist. Right. I find a lot of this language that's very easily thrown around comes from oversimplifications of text. Like a lot of protagonists or heroes are much more passive than than the words suggest. Mm -hmm. Like Aschenbach, thank God, doesn't actually do anything in this book. Um, right. He's just sort of a passive spectator. Right. And and on, along the lines of this idea of craft and the modernists, so Aschenbach, in the beginning, he's in the middle of a writing process. Mm -hmm. And he already has an established reputation of somewhat like dubious proportions. Like according to him, it's pretty grand. And he yeah. has money and fame and repute. Mm -hmm. But he's telling... The narrator is telling us that, and yeah, and the narrative is totally routed through his right perspective. So he's obviously successful and has means, but he, there's a self-lauding and a self-aggrandizement about his stature as a writer. Yes, um, but it's pro it's probable, and, it, and it, how much of that is biographical? Well, um, man's own uh, man's own success. I think that this book is one of his earlier books. <coughs> I think he didn't achieve quite this level of fame. So, well, let's back up. So he does achieve fame pretty early because he writes a first novel that I don't think either of us have ever read. It's very long, uh, called Buddenbrooks. Hmm. And that made him a star when he was in his mid-20s. Okay. And so he got famous very quickly, and then he had a hard time following it up. So he writes a couple short novels for a decade or so. And then his fame resurges again in the 20s with his great novel, one of the greatest novels ever written, uh, The Magic Mountain of yeah. 1925. And that's when he wins the Nobel Prize. So I don't think he was quite there yet. Okay. This is a little bit autobiogra autobiographical, but not fully. Right. So some unreliability can't peg it all on the, the man himself. Yeah. The man himself. <laughs> the man himself. Uh, maybe he had that Magic Mountain comeback once he discovered the magic of loving little boys. Well, right. That's <laughs> which is kind of what this yeah. book is about. And well, and there is a little bit of uh, – so the theme of little boys, um, the theme – so one of the ways in which this book is autobiographical is that Mann did take a trip to Venice. Okay, though he let's was. just get it out there. Let's, yeah. get, let's do it. Go, because I want to go back to something – read you something about craft. Yeah. But maybe we should just we're, let's just put it out there now. So what, 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 are you, what are we going to be talking about here? So the thing that strikes me in my second reading of this text, particularly in the very 
calamitously unstable cultural and political moment we're in that didn't hit me when I read it the first time is the extent to which this is a book about and, and I want to be clear about this. This is often said to be a gay book or a homosexual book. The gayest. One of the gayest novels. And um I think that's a little unjust mm. because this is actually a book about pederasty. It's a book and in fact pedophilia. And I don't know that it, I, I think it matters historically that the desire is for a man for a boy because it connects man to a Greek tradition yeah. that is evoked in the The novel. Grecian release. Yeah, the Grecian uh, man-boy uh, protocol there. Um, but um, I think that 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 I was so consumed with the form of the book the first time I read it that I, I sort of missed that aspect of the content. And I think that I think we should think of this book not in the line of, say, um, E.M. Forster's Morris or or uh, James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room as part of the canon of gay literature. I think we should think of it as uh, kin to Lolita. It's a book in the canon of literature of pedophilia and the ethics. Uh, of literature approaching a topic like this. And it becomes you know, difficult in Mann's case because this yeah. desire was autobiographical. Mm-hmm. So he was – the divisions he writes about in his work, mm-hmm. he lived in his life between this stolid, respectable, bourgeois life and this sexually transgressive life. He lived this tension. So he gets married to a woman. He has multiple children. But throughout his life, he observes young men, young boys. Mm -hmm. And so he's on a trip to Venice with his wife, and I think maybe he had one or two kids by then. But he sees a beautiful boy. And what I learned recently was the boy that the protagonist, Gustav von Aschenbach, sees in Death in Venice, his name is Tazio, in the novella, he's 14. The boy Mann saw was 10. And if you see a picture, there's a book that was published about 20 years ago called The Real Tazio and has a picture of him in it. It looks 10. I mean, it looks, right. looks like a small child. Yeah. And so I thought, well, this uh, needs to be addressed. This needs to be addressed. Um, Is this not commonly apprehended? I think it is, but I think the the critics – that I've looked at um, that you might find in the Norton Critical Edition are so consumed with putting it in that Greek pantheon. Homoerotic. Homoerotics of Greece. So um, there's a there's a, a, a separation from our contemporary context of pedophilia and a collective move to read this novel through, through homoerotic longing uh, via the uh, Greek morality. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I think that that's that's fair and that's in the book. And Mann is deliberately – he draws throughout the book on Plato who writes about this man-boy love. And those Um, are the safest (laughs) moments of his contemplation is when he is interpreting these – this passion and this attraction through – Greek myth. Yes, it's, it feels the safest. It isn't as roiled in the sickness of Venice and the in mm-hmm. the more in the moral wickedness and the transgression. It's it's a space that allows him to um, work with it. Yeah, I, I think it's it's about the book. Sort of 
enacts what it's about, which is about the way the classics, their very classic, their very classicism conceals this transgressive desire that we think they're safe. That all these conversations we're having now about people wanting to ban um, YA graphic novels that depict teenage sexual experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but is uh, they want to ban this from the school library? But is is Death in Venice maybe in a high school library? Might very well be. Is uh, yeah, but high schoolers are pretty fucking stupid. So. <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know the classics they deceive with this kind of marble surface that right. you that you think they're safe. Right. But they might be the most dangerous. So have uh, the queer uh, queer studies and 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 queer critics who. Some of them love this book. Yeah, I know. A, I know a queer uh, critic and writer who, I mean, he absolutely goes bananas for Death in Venice. Yeah, and of course, the idea, you know, gay men are up against a, a stigma that they're pedophiles. Yeah. Well, I found this. You know, speaking of graphic novels, I've been teaching for years, of course, in the graphic novel. And one of the texts I regularly teach is Fun Home by Alison Bechtel, which is one of the books that a lot of these um, angry parents and conservative activists often want to ban from school libraries. And anyway, it's, it's not a book that's for, for, for children, I would say. Um, but when I teach it in college classes, my students, and particularly as the years have gone on, because we're, we're seeing now what... Um, what uh, what the internet personality known as default friend uh, Catherine D. I appeared on her podcast once. Uh, she has written an article um, about the what she calls the coming wave of sex negativity among like Gen Z. Okay. And her thesis is that all the sex positivity coming out of the first the '60s and then the millennial third wave feminist right. movement and the gay liberation and. Uh, queer theory stuff that endless cock and balls <clears throat> endless cock and balls to quote another unfortunate character here um, yeah. <laughs> um ginsburg ginsburg uh, not ruth bader not ruth bader but uh, nambla supporter alan ginsburg um so she says the young the young people now um feel betrayed by this that it, it's it's just been exploitative that it's just led to yeah. um only fans take and, your uh, politicized unleashed libidinal public drives and shove them. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're just trying to get into college here. Right. And so when I teach Fun Home, which is just considered this um, partially a coming out story and partially the story of, um, so Alison Bechtel, it's about her coming out as a lesbian, as a a young woman, but also about her father's closeted uh, gay desire that he was never able to enact. But in the book, he is mainly interested in teenage boys. Mm-hmm. And my students increasingly notice that and want to talk about that. And, Interesting. and it's not considered in the book that much of an ethical problem. It's just kind of taken for granted. So do they read it as representative of sort of a macro encroachment on their own sexual development? Yeah, I think so. I think that they've been so, you know, exposed to the ambiently sexually predatory nature of the internet that they're very sensitized to that in ways that that uh, certainly my generation wasn't. So what I, I tended to say to my students who are upset about Fun Home, and then they were so upset about Fun Home that I started giving them another book that was even worse, uh, just to create kind of a genealogy for so you're a good teacher. Uh, it, well, I don't know, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, I I tell them 
look, the thing about the guy in the book in Fun Home, Alison Bechtel's father, who was a real person, but um, the thing about him is when he's growing up in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and he has some kind of same gender desire, the models available to him were a bunch of modernist and late Victorian texts whose own models were the Greek classics that okay. were just being translated in the 19th century. And those models were pederastic. It was an older man and a younger man. Mm -hmm. And I said, so it's not so much that we're dealing with a stereotype that comes out of nowhere, and it's not so much that we're dealing with this evil perversion that's coming to get you. We're dealing with a history that developed in a certain way because those were the texts and those were the models that were right. available. And I think Death in Venice fits into that tradition. Okay. But I also think there's a more disturbing underground history of pedophilia running through the whole 20th century and the whole project of sexual liberation okay. that we also could put it into touch with. Culminating in the grand apotheosis of Jeffrey Epstein's island. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that has increased consciousness of these issues. And I think when we put it into that context, then the question of whether you're talking about men and women, men and men, women and women, becomes less important than that you're talking about um, different ages. Because the, the mother of queer theory, if I can put it that way, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, in her book, Epistemology of the Closet, has a passage where she says, and she's, you know, she's a follower of Foucault, she's, she's kind of lamenting this, but I, I actually think maybe it's a positive development. She says the development of the idea of homosexuality is precisely moving away from pederasty. So pederasty was about the difference in the lovers. One is older and one is younger. And homosexuality is about them being the same sex, which then becomes a equitable, equal companionship of two equals rather than a power, right. powerless and a powerful person. And I think that's a progressive development. Something Fukuyama might approve of. Precisely, yes. Fukuyama, not Foucault. <laughs> need a button. Yeah. We choose our, our F words carefully around here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so back to the... Back to the text and back to this idea of craft. So at the very beginning, you know, even if you didn't know how this novel turns out, which mo this is one of those texts where most people know how it ends before they start it. Yeah. I mean, it's what's in the title. <laughs> right. Um, and it has a reputation. But right away with von Aschenbach, we talk about, and I, you talked about the modernist, self-reflexive element. And he's working at a, at a text and he has this type of self-reflection about the writing process. He thought about his work, thought about the place where once again, today as yesterday, he had been forced to abandon it, a passage that would submit, it seemed, neither to patient care nor to surprise attack. So he's in a craft. He's examining the craft. He's not. He's in a sort of block, and he's running out of, the methods allotted to him by his discipline and his classicism are running dry. Yeah. At this, in the beginning of the text. Mm -hmm. And where do you read repression? Where do you read the launching of the narrative? 
how is this and that is masterfully set in motion by Mon here. Yeah. Well, the book is written in a style that is very Aschenbachian. It's very heavy, perfectly balanced sentences. Again, I'm assuming the translators are But lacking and afraid of something. Yeah. In, in precisely repressed, repressed yeah. way. Yeah. So uh one of the early reviews in English was written by D.H. Lawrence, and he said, well, Mann is of this school of Flaubert, where every sentence is a torture. You spend all day writing a sentence. And Lawrence was like, you can't write like this. This is, this is not life. This is, you know, literature needs to have life in it. You've got to write quicker from the heart, you know, from mm-hmm. the, or from the balls, you know, in, in D.H. Lawrence's case. Um, and, and, you know, Lawrence is very different from Mann, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of dross in Lawrence's prose that you could that you could want to burn off that's not there right. in Mons, but it moves much more quickly and is much more overtly emotional. Okay. And the sex is right up on the surface mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the other passions. So, yeah, there's a, it's a style that I think the word I used, I keep coming back to this metaphor, but um, marmorial, made of marble, mm-hmm. um, this kind of marble facade. It is a facade. And Lawrence doesn't have to filter his sexual drives through classical mythology. Right, because Lawrence. I mean, Lawrence also <laughs> is sexually problematic, but he's only interested in, in adult women um, and maybe his mother. But that's uh, that's different. So take us, get us to the boat, get us to the gondola. How, where does this guy go? Where does Aschenbach go? Yeah, What's so Aschenbach's walking along. He's right. He's got writer's block. He's in Munich, and he sees two things. He sees a Byzantine church, and he sees this man with red hair standing by a graveyard. And I think, and then both of these make him think he wants to go somewhere southern, somewhere eastern, and I because Byzantine, you know, that's the east, that's the mm-hmm. the schism in the church and everything, and then red hair. I think I'm getting this from Cynthia Ozick. In fact, her latest book, Antiquities, but Cynthia Ozick talks about the um, the idea of Jews as having red hair. So I interpret this man as Jewish, um, as somehow. From the point of view of this German Protestant okay. middle class bourgeois, like a foreigner, so he sees these emblems of foreignness, and so he wants to go east. He wants to go south, and he's described as having. So Mann's mother was from Brazil, and Aschenbach's mother is from Bohemia, so Eastern right. Europe. So, um, so there's this this division in the artist between. The North, the West, the Protestant, the bourgeois, and the Southern, the Eastern, the, you know, it's it's liquid versus solid. It's it's uh, hot versus cold. Reason versus passion. Reason versus passion, yeah. So he's, he's the perfect synthesis, in a way, um, of these classical uh, binaries or these, mm-hmm. these structures. But yet one is not sufficiently served which is the Eastern yeah. way. Mm-hmm. And he is driven almost unconsciously to travel to Venice. Yeah. And he goes to Venice, he says, and this is, you know, the, another sort of uh, identity politics theme of this book is it's very Orientalist, just steeped in Orientalism. Uh, and he says, I want to go East, but not all the way to the Tigers, mm. which is the thought that will come to haunt him later. Um so he goes to Venice, and this is the idea that, um, you know, in American racial discourse, we say black versus white, but Europe is much more internally divided. I think we talked about this in our mm-hmm. Ukraine mm-hmm. episodes that 
Southern Europe and Eastern Europe aren't necessarily considered European. Right. They're considered somehow Oriental or Italy is often, um, there's this trope of um, half of Italy is really just uh, North Africa. Um, and so he goes to Venice. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard that that English men and women treat Italy as their repository for forbidden pleasures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sam, you've never been to Venice? No. I was there once. I was. It was my post-college trip to Europe with my, my wife. We weren't actually married then. Um, and we went to a couple countries on one of those Eurorail passes. Mm-hmm. And so Venice was as far east as we got. We wanted to go to Greece, but there was a ferry between Italy and Greece, and it was closed when we were there, So we and we couldn't go overland because we'd have to pass through other countries, and mm-hmm. we didn't have a pass for those countries. But we couldn't stay in Venice overnight because it was too expensive. Mm. Um, so we just spent the afternoon in Venice. And it's it's a place like no other. Um, it's a very strange place. But the thing that – I think the one thing that helps to think about this book that actually going to Venice will show the reader is that you will get lost in Venice. It is a city that it is impossible to find your way through. Precisely. We were lost for an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to get back to the train station. And I think that quality of the labyrinthine, the maze, mm-hmm. you're always – because you can't go directly anywhere because everything's bisected by a canal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're always coming up against water and having to retrace your steps. And so I think this idea of this this book, this maze, this labyrinth of mm-hmm. desire is something we could think about. As if you put himself in that that situation to get lost yeah, or to – to transgress. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is a simple story. You could explain it. Oh, Aschenbach, very repressed, goes to this eastern locality, has attractive yet repulsive reactions to the locals, finds an object of his, his love and libido. Um, has he's able to write better. He gets liberated. He, there's a sickness that comes on metaphorically and figuratively. He succumbs to the sickness but reaches um, a level of expression that was unavailable to, unavailable to him um, in his hometown and with his usual methods. And maybe it's like a story of repression and liberation. But what else is going on here? What else is going on here? Um, one thing, one context I would put it in is, again, looking back to modernism. So one feature of modernist literature that you see in Joyce's Ulysses and Eliot's The Wasteland and much of Yeats's poetry and uh, plays by Eugene O'Neill and other texts is this what Eliot called the mythic method. So the mythic method is where instead of <clears> – <throat> so the, other, the the older way of writing a a poem would be you'd express your subjectivity. That was the great romantic poem. And then the way of writing a novel is it's realist. You look around. You write about the world around you. And the modernist said um, – this is how Eliot tells it, very conservative. I don't know if this is the way all of them thought about it. But they said <clears throat> there's some there's some mythic structure underneath this modern chaos that we're mm. seeing. And you can connect this with Freud and Jung too, that there's the unconscious mind goes back mm. 
and we're controlled by these ideas that are expressed more clearly in the in the mythical world. And so this is a text of the mythic method. I think there's two ancient Greek prototypes or three ancient Greek prototypes underlying the novella. So one is Plato's dialogue, The Phaedrus, which is about a number of things. One of the things it's about is it's a dialogue between Socrates and one of his young pupils about love and about whether when the older man and the younger man love each other, should they lay hands on each other? Should they enact that love? And Socrates concludes that they shouldn't. Socrates says that, no, um, beauty here on earth is just a prefiguration of the beautiful forms. Okay. And, and what philosophy does is it communes with those forms. And so if you touch another person thinking you're going to find some transcendence, you've missed the the boat, to put it in in essence, terms. But in essence, philosophy is more is in closer proximity to what is beautiful than poetry is. Yeah, he does talk about in the Phaedrus about poetry being divine madness. So poetry comes from this world of the the divine. Um, and I think Mann is thinking about that, but I think he's also thinking about this idea of should you touch the beautiful boy mm -hmm. or should which, you Which just... he never does. He never does. There's no molestation. There's no transgression in that sense in this book. And nor was there in Mann's life. Mann never – Mann said I would not um, go to bed with a boy mm -hmm. and he never did. So this divine frenzy – to which every true poet is subject. Yeah. There's a wonderful passage in the Phaedrus. Um, it makes me think of MFA programs uh, where Socrates says, if a poet comes before, I think he says, if a poet comes before the gate without this divine frenzy, he'll be dismissed. He's not a poet. So it is a, at once necessary but also dangerous and should be subordinated to philosophical governance. Yeah. So what else constitutes this mythic structure? So the second idea I think that um, Mann is drawing on, and this is via Nietzsche. So this is a text. So many modernist texts are steeped in Nietzsche's philosophy. Annoyingly. Annoyingly. <laughs> I wish there could have been one other philosopher that was that polemical and seductive and and deliriously empowering. Yes. So we didn't have, don't have to say his fucking name over and over again. <laughs> right. But again, who, would it, who is it? Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Sure, go ahead. Right. What did he say? Back in graduate school, we just called him Nietzsche. Yeah. Um, so Nietzsche in uh, his early book, uh, The Birth of Tragedy, that's where he defines the conflict between Apollo and Dionysus. Here we go. And he says that Apollo, the god of... Music and harmony and boundaries and order and light, uh, that's one way to live. And he's very Greek. And then from the east, from the Orient, comes Dionysus, the god of wine, frenzy, dancing, mm -hmm. song. And this is often ill understood. It's a very good book, The Birth of Tragedy. Most of Nietzsche's books, I don't know, I haven't read most of Nietzsche's books, but the ones I've read um, are often fragments, aphorisms. But this is a, a long considered— Blatant mental illness. Blatant mental illness. <laughs> <laughs> the brain tumor descending. Um, but this one's actually a, a, an extended argument. And he it's often misunderstood as he was advocating the Dionysian, just, you know, just go out, get drunk, take your clothes off. Uh, but no, he says the ideal artwork 
is the Greek tragedies of Aeschylus and Sophocles. And he said what they had the genius to do was to capture the Dionysian, which is the deep truth mm -hmm. of life, the flux, the tearing, the dancing, the intoxication, the frenzy. And they arrest that in Apollonian moments of calm, okay. which are their scenes. And I think that Mann is enacting that in the book. Right. He has a frenzy at the heart of it, but the book is calm and Apollonian. Apollonian. And the boy is Apollonian, yeah. but the disease is Dionysian. Okay. Um, so that's number two. And then number three is uh, Euripides, whom Nietzsche hated uh, and thought was the degeneration of Greek drama. But Euripides, his famous play, The Bacchae, and that is a play about when the followers of Dionysus, these frenzied women, the, the Bacchantes, they come into the city, Thebes, I don't remember what city it is, but they come into the city and the king reacts very badly, King Pentheus, and he says he's— The king gets cranky. He gets cranky. He's very conservative. <laughs> he says, we're going to stamp this out. He's, uh, if you remember, John Ashcroft, uh, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, we got to put this down. Yeah. And so he tries to put them down, and it doesn't work, and the play ends with him being led to sort of spy on them dressed as a woman. And so the play ends with him, like, in female drag, going mm -hmm. to see the Bacantes, and then eventually he's outed and, and they tear him apart. They Aww. rip him to pieces. Um, so so that's the – and I think that Aschenbach, when he is in Venice, he has this dream of the Dionysian revels. The dream. Yeah. That's the, probably the most famous and, and beautiful passage of the novel.
So is that an encapsulation of this? What you're describing is the mythic. Yeah. And um, unlike other mythic method modernist texts where the author just kind of overlays the myth onto the text, like, you know, in Ulysses, Leopold Bloom isn't going around thinking, oh, I'm just like Ulysses. Um, that's something the author is conscious of, but not the the character. This is coming from Aschenbach. He's the one who he there's a line where it says he, when he first sees Tatsio and he looks like this beautiful young god, he says that gave rise to mythic images. So he is self-consciously placing himself into this Greek tradition. You know, we we know he's read Plato and he's read Euripides and he's read Nietzsche. Well, you know, that's very interesting and I think back to some of my studies of Milton and the way that poets and writers have used mythology in their various times to represent a poetic subjectivity and explain through those mythic potencies their their situations and predicaments in ways that could not otherwise be explained through the myth. For example, um, Milton Samson, uh, Samson Agonistes, where, uh, of course, he uses the the myth of Samson and his ability to de- to destroy the Philistines um, as a way to explain, but ultimate self-destruction as a way to explain what happened in the First Republic and Cromwell's sacrifice and strength, um, but ultimately impossible objective. So this way of using myth to bring out subjectivity and context isn't new, but I wonder if Mon is using it in a way that is not heroic and is not public, but is in fact tortured and abased and deteriorating and completely private. Yeah. um, I think one of the things that that might gain by juxtaposing this book with Lolita, Nabokov hated Mann, by the way, um, because he, for the same reason he hated Dostoevsky. Nabokov, as you put it, is a dick. (laughs) 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 Um, His his exacting standards are uh, often missed too much. But one of the things that happens in Lolita is that Humbert Humbert, the pedophile narrator of that novel, justifies himself with this kind of Greek rhetoric. He says, I'm attracted not to little girls, but to nymphettes. And I think something similar might be happening with Aschenbach. And you bring up this idea of the debased, and I think the way that they thought of it in the turn of the century was the decadent or the degenerate. So um, The perverse, incongruous, absurd, and forbidden. Yeah, and and the so the one term was degenerate. That's the term we talked about last week. It gets used a lot on like the alt right. They they always talk about degeneracy. Yeah, those fucking eugenicists. Yeah, <laughs> and where that comes from is a book from the eighteen nineties called Degeneration by a man named Max Nordau. Huge book, like six hundred pages. I haven't read the whole thing, uh, but I read some excerpts. And he said, you know, we're in this period where. Mankind is sort of physiologically degenerated, and our artists are insane. Uh, you know, Ibsen and Baudelaire and right. these people—they—they've got this like they—they've just physically deteriorated. Right. Um, and and 
interestingly, Nietzsche, who was physically deteriorating, and that's one of the reasons he wrote that way, but he also had this idea of decadence. He talks about decadence as being um, when artists are no longer capable of wholeness. When he says, like, the, the word leaps out of the sentence, the sentence leaps out of the paragraph. And you could think of right. that Flaubertian way of writing. Right, where distortion, degeneracy, and even perhaps demonry are celebrated as fine art. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's this moment. That's their claim. Yeah. Well, and I mean, if we want to argue with them, it's whether it's good or not, but it was what was happening. <laughs> okay, well, let's take that debate that you're setting in motion and and look at Death in Venice through that. Because I Death in Venice has a form that is classical in structure and execution, but it also relies on repressed and deranged subject matter and and base energy and never fully releases. There aren't all-out descriptions. There isn't molestation, as you said, but very consciously uses it as its subject matter in the pursuit of writing a novella, of course, that aims to be a great work of art or high art. How would you How would you begin to break that down? What are the merits of this or the limits? So I think this this book, again, like Lolita, raises that argument to or takes that argument to a limit where it becomes uncomfortable to defend it. So to me, it's very mm. easy to take a book like A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man or Madame Bovary or um, <clears throat> Virginia Woolf's novels or something like that that have this very impressive form that is highly wrought, that's not like the 19th century or the 18th century is kind of bumbling through a story as you get it in Henry Fielding or Charles Dickens. Right. Um, and it, it's it's easy to see that as a triumph because what they describe isn't quite as horrifying as the specter of uh, an adult preying on a child. And I think when you take that subject matter um, and other works have done this with other kinds of subject matter. We could talk about um, the fascist politics of some modernist mm -hmm. art or the, the racism or, or something of some modernist works of mm -hmm. art. When you put it into that context, then you start to ask yourself, what am I defending? And so for me, the first time I read this book, I unhesitatingly sort of approved of it because one of the things it says is that um, or the way I read it, and maybe this isn't right, but the, the way I first read it was, well, if as long as you contain all of this in form, then it's fine to think about, you know? But how contained is it really? And the thing is, Aschenbach comes to a very harsh conclusion in the novella. He comes to the conclusion based, again, on Plato, mm -hmm. um, that really it's, it's immoral to make art. That art itself is always, no matter how classical it seems, is always going to be parasitic upon this um, this forbidden desire. So he says um, toward the so end. He, he's positioning art as not just reliant upon but an extension of things that should be um, suppressed, controlled. And yeah inexpressible. Yeah. So he imagines himself as well, don't project, Mon. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You well, don't have to you don't have to end the whole party just because you're 
looking at the ten-year-old boy. Well, that's the thing, right? Is that is that well, if this is a very special case, is it is it really the case that if you liberate desire, yeah. it automatically goes here? That's a projection, and the question comes up, and maybe he was conscious of this. Maybe I'm allowed to express this. Maybe I'm even brave in expressing this. We could talk about this and our current society's um, um, lack of acceptance for maybe the natural phenomenon of pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Or that can't we just accept that it's a part of it and deal with it? And mm-hmm. does the stigmatization make it worse? So there's ways to sublimate these things. This problem that's never going away. So those type of debates. But Mon at once he at once protected himself from it or showcased restraint but also fully in the act of writing the novel fully um partook yeah in it as if he did um sexually violate the boy and in some sense he did something even w- worse in the act of writing the novel well right because he violates all of us <laughs> yeah he violates all of us <laughs> right um yeah, and he – I mean the conclusion Aschenbach comes to is is the platonic one, ban art, ban art, ban sex, like <laughs> like we should not do these things. So he imagines himself as Socrates in the Phaedrus when he's mm-hmm. dying and he, he's addressing his young charge. He says, for you must know that we poets cannot walk the path of beauty without Eros joining our company and even making himself our leader. Do you see then that we poets can be neither wise nor honorable, that we necessarily go astray, that we necessarily remain dissolute adventurers of emotion? The masterly demeanor of our style is a lie and a folly, our fame and our honor a sham, the confidence accorded us by our public utterly ridiculous, the education of the populace and of the young by means of of art, a risky enterprise that ought not to be allowed. So full Plato. Yeah. He went full Plato. Yeah. Which just like they were doing in their day, he's doing there, which is to try to cope with inexcusable sexual behaviors. Yes. But then on the other side, I sometimes think... Take the other side. ...that you alluded to this debate over pedophilia... I, I guess how how strongly do I want to phrase this? Um, should I should I just go all the way? Uh, let me phrase it very strongly. Mm-hmm. Is is the liberation of pedophilia part of the general left wing project of universal human emancipation? I've gotten signals to that direction. I have too, and I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bring it up except that you have – and this is a famous thing. Everybody talks about this now. It's kind of become a meme. But there's that petition that all the French intellectuals signed, Sartre, de Beauvoir, Derrida, Foucault, um, Barthes. They all signed the petition to abolish the age of consent. Foucault said you can't proscribe this this form of desire because he says what if the child – has a desire for that adult. Do you want to diminish the child's agency? Um, <laughs> yeah, do you want to diminish the child's agency? <laughs> right. And if the rumors are to be believed, he he, he partook in this himself. Um, and at least – I don't know if the full rumors are to be believed, but certainly I would say at the very least he was with young male sex workers of some age uh, that was under what we would consider an appropriate age. How young? I don't know. Um, 
And why plus, do, plus or minus four years. Plus or minus four <laughs> years. So I, I don't I don't say this lightly. I don't say this to be Ben Shapiro or or whatever. Um, I want to be Ben Shapiro. Be, ben, I feel like Ben Shapiro is a specter haunting this podcast. The risk of phrasing it as brutally as I just phrased it is it gives us a very stark choice. So let me let me draw out the thought a minute. So um, if the I see the project of left-wing universal liberation as saying that much of what we think of as hierarchies between people and differences between people that earlier generations attributed to nature are in fact socially constructed, usually for the benefit of some elite class, some privileged class. And if this is true, if we really think, because one of the main ideas Foucault has is that there are nothing sort of pre-exists social discourse about it. Mm -hmm. Everything is constructed within the discursive bounds of some social field. You wish. You wish. So <laughs> if this is true, are we forced to contemplate the idea of the difference between an adult and a child being purely a social construct accruing to the benefit of the oppressive class of parents and adults and therefore we must consider the liberating the sexual agency of the child. And I guess by putting it this starkly, we then start to have to choose between, well, are we willing to contemplate that or are we willing to say maybe the Ben Shapiros of the world have a point about some things, if not all? Where do we start to draw that line? If that, in fact, liberate, liberation of child sexual agency yeah new child sexual agency new department in law enforcement yeah <laughs> no, sounds the, like we need it yeah we probably need it chris hansen yeah uh, <laughs> uh, and it'll be run by jack posobic right that's a good thing i mean the american far right you know you hate him for a lot of reasons but if if you want a good square you know pedophile bashing then yeah you, there's only one place to go well, this this is actually what I'm starting to worry about is yeah. liberals now, if you mention pedophilia, they're like, well, what are you, QAnon? It's like, well, oh, you yeah. know, pedophilia is a thing. Yeah, liberals what? do that. <laughs> they, they do, they, that's how they roll, you know? Yeah, like, so, but they, anyway. You they, well, yeah, they attach normal worries and interests to taboo uh, monikers and yeah. labels. It's, it's a weird Right. To make the support of Trump so socially unacceptable that you would face backlash by normally voting for a, one of the two the duopoly you know, parties in the United right. States. It's like a right. weird, <laughs> weird way of like – I mean isn't that why you and I are being so hesitant right now that we <laughs> – because the taboo – I believe the taboo you and I yeah. are now flirting with – is not contemplating pedophilia. It's contemplating, do conservatives have a point? And we're almost as worried <laughs> to say that as we would be to say, should well, we contemplate pedophilia? I would say, maybe that's a nice point, but I would say that I'm not very worried. Okay. I'm not very worried <laughs> about this one. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not innerly, but right, I mean, but there's, there's, there's some that kind specter. of... Yeah, stigma or something. Yeah, there's yeah. that um, symbolic arrangement. Yeah. That that were never out from under, lest it be changed by our betters. And 
<laughs> and so, but that's the that's the place to go for um, staunch a position against what we're describing: the liberation of child sex and sexual agency. And that's only if John, which we've intimated in this discussion, but we're not. There's no conclusiveness to it. That's only if the end of adult-child sexual relations is built into this these, this progressive sexual movement at large. Yeah, and we don't know if it's an end. But we don't. I mean, there is. I mean, there is theoretically there's a limit, which is consent. And the idea that children, by their nature, can't give sexual consent. But I guess my 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 concern is if all difference and all hierarchy is seen as arbitrary and socially constructed, is that going to be enough? Don't you need a stronger, some stronger philosophical premise? So you're saying the the worst case sort of logical nightmare scenario is if. They're just these efforts of normalization and into pedophilia to the point where it becomes LGBTQIAP plus. Right. Yeah. I mean, is that? Well, it is. And I think, <clears throat> you know, we have to be very careful here because. Because of the obvious and very harshly responded to implication that homosexuality equals pedophilia. Yes. That's what, yes. Yes. And what we need to be careful about is we need to be careful about undoing the work that gay writers and thinkers did across the 20th century to de-link those ideas that you find. I mentioned the, the uh, classic gay novels, uh, um, Morris by E.M. Forster or Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin or uh, A Single Man by Christopher Isherwood, where all, all of those novels represent um, represent some of the perversions of desire as coming about through the repression of normal human adult love of mm -hmm. a man for a man. Right. And they say once you repress that and once you drive that underground and once you don't allow that expression, which should be allowed, this, this consenting right. love between two adult people, that's when you put it into the realm of the forbidden and right. it picks up like lint all these yes. other forbidden implications. It's bad for people. It's bad for you, people. Suddenly you're living in a world of J. Edgar Hoover's. Yes, precisely. And aren't we risking undoing that work by saying, oh, um, everything now is equally queer and everything queer is good and everything normal is evil and stigmatized? I don't know. Are we? <laughs> I think we probably are a little bit. <laughs> So what is this? What are we talking about? A, a certain cultural conservatism? Well, I don't. I don't think so. I'm. I'm uh, <laughs> what is it? I was saying this in 2020. I'm. What am I? I'm economically liberal and socially, and socially conservative. conservative. We yeah. can write for the New Journal Compact. Yeah. Have you heard yeah. of it? I'm post. Um, <laughs> I'm post left. I'm post left. I'm nationalist. Yeah. I'm. I, I, I'm into tariffs. Right. I'm into reindustrializing the United States. Yeah. I'm into a certain degree of liber uh, libertarian culture but i want i want nationhood i want honor dignity certain degrees of gender roles certain limits on sexuality in place because i 
See, that is indispensable to the preservation of our culture and heritage. And yes, I use the H word, a heritage. Mm-hmm. I'm not a heretic. I'm a lover of heritage. Yeah. So that's sort of like... Maybe. I, I don't think... It, for myself, I accept the label post-left for myself. I don't get hung up on that. I think that probably describes something about because me. because you're smarter than all the other people in it. But, well, well they all, it's one of those labels everybody just Boom. says, well, I'm not post-left. Well, yeah. whatever. I mean, obviously, I, I sort of am post-left. But yeah. um, They're smart, but they're a little indulgent. That's the thing I have with a post-left. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. They're a little indulgent. It's like their ideology is cute and precious. Right. It's never cute and precious, <laughs> no matter where you are. Right. Um, but I, I actually think, Sam, that the old liberalism it, it works here the old liberalism where when has it not john <laughs> the old <laughs> liberalism is as little as as half a decade ago that, that provided us with gay marriage i think works perfectly here that said you can accept what you need to do as a descendant of the enlightenment as a rational self-reflexive citizen is you don't need to accept everything tradition hands to you on mm-hmm. a plate. And you also don't need to drive over the cliff of, oh, well, there's no hierarchies. There's no, you know, everything's permitted. You, what you do is you and you as an individual and then we as a society decide for ourselves. And we decide, well, here's the reason this is not allowed because rationally there is a difference between children and adults. That's embedded in nature and that no amount of social engineering can overcome. Even though it finds different cultural expressions at different times, it's still a real difference. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, there must not be any sexual congress between an adult and a child. Mustn't. And then on the other hand, adults can decide for themselves through whatever mechanism or motivation brings them to desire it who they want to love and sexually engage with. And that should be permitted by society because it's not the government's role and it's not society's role to tell adults what to do with themselves and each other. In a secular liberal state, of course not. Yeah. So the old liberalism is fine by me. I don't need the new conservatism or the new Mm. whatever this radicalism is. But to conserve the old liberalism, it's conservative (laughs) posture, bro. Right. Well, yeah, sure. The Overton window is shifting. Now we've got a big, juicy dialectic to roll with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, liberal and conservative. Oh, fuck, we're both, and we've always been both. It's a dialectical nation, man. It is. That's why we like it. Hegelian Nation. That'd be a good title for a book. Hegelian Hegelian Nation. Nation. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of sounds like alienation. Yeah, a lot of wordplay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have two questions. Sure. All right. So, first of all, the idea that pedophilia, and this might be some claims from the left, but the idea that pedophilia is natural, natural, um, to a degree, faultless psychological, physiological condition. Mm-hmm. It's like Aschenbach, the poor man is obviously repressed and tortured and alone because he's not able to express this safely in society. So he has to go move towards death, sickness, and and licentiousness. Yep, word of the episode. <laughs> yep. <laughs> word of the episode. Licentious. Maybe I'll work it into the title. <laughs> I don't often win word of the episode. <laughs> 
But I wanted, I wanted this. Nice. Essentially, I didn't it's a know. knockout blow. I, I didn't. That's a knockout blow, cur- courtesy of the 18th century sentimentalists. <laughs> I didn't know that we were playing this game. That's a knockout blow. <laughs> well, I haven't won it in like 10 episodes, okay. but I just won it there. So I don't want to celebrate my losses. Well, congratulations. <clears throat> that's a knockout blow. So he has to pursue this. He has to pursue this licentiousness. And wouldn't you say, have pity on these people they can't control, and we don't judge things for people who can't control, uh, th- for things that they can't control. So we must create reasonable outlets, whether it be art, whether it be support groups, and we just make it worse if we judge them. So I'd say that's a, right there. Mm-hmm. That's about, I think, the per- what I just said is the per- uh, permissible line at mm-hmm. which this, this movement um, to rep- represent Pedoph- uh, pedophiles as, as sort of an identity group yeah, and give them more accepted rights or at least yeah. recognition within society. That's about where the permissible line is now, that it, they can't help it you, and we at least have to let them. This is what I'm starting to hear yeah. from, from even regular liberals. Um, I, look, there's something to that to the extent that um, – I mean I, I start to get worried when you talk about expression through art um, – because what does that mean? Where does that end? Is there not a danger of exploitation? Well, it means pornography. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, and so pragmatically, I'm a free speech guy, so I don't think what is written as text or drawn can be forbidden by the state for me. That would be covered by the First Amendment. Of course, child pornography is not pornography so much as it is the record of a crime. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, that is must be completely banned. And if you engage in it, you should be punished. Punished. My apologies to our future Supreme Court justice, but punished fairly harshly. Um, but <laughs> I was wondering when K- Katashi Brown Jackson, <laughs> yeah, well, going to appear in this debate. That is the context in which we're recording this. Um, be careful, man! I might go into Josh Hawley mode. <laughs> right. And I have a Josh Hawley mode. Oh, boy. I have a Josh Hawley mode. <laughs> oh, boy. I do. Uh, I'll tell you a story about Mr. Josh Hawley from Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly, I think that, yes, uh, you know, I, I'm agnostic about whether sexual proclivities are inborn or, or come from early childhood experiences or whatever. But mm-hmm. I do think they probably are relatively unchangeable compulsions by the time you're an adult. So, yes, something's got to be done to help those people. You know, we don't want to necessarily drop them into a volcano or something. Something must be done. Yeah, we don't want to buy them a 24-pack of Mountain Dew and give them a a Dell computer. (laughs) Right. There's there's obviously, again, two extremes (laughs) we're trying to avoid. And I have to leave it to psychologists or social workers. Oh, great. (laughs) Now I feel so much better that we're going to leave this issue to psychologists. You rest assured that psychologists will improve the outcomes of of it, it, rep- repressed masculine pathologies. In an ideal world, that would be the case. Um, but yeah, and what was your second question? Okay, so that's fair. So you're neither you're wary of the movement as it's politicized, but you you understand that there's reasonable things to be done to yeah. contain it. Yeah. Okay. My second question is. 
Oh, but because there's some people on the right who say, "Fuck these people. We don't give them. They don't get their own public support group. They don't get their own forums. They don't get their. Own, they can go fucking die in a sewer." There's some people on the right. Amy Therese is one of them. Right, and I think that's too. That's how you. That's how you get. You know, it's kind of about priest and and yeah, because yeah, re, just repression isn't going to work. It's going to come okay. out somewhere. Okay, now, now, what do we think about? What do we think about these right wingers? Mm-hmm. And this culture of uh, anti-pedophilia, suspicion, threats, punishment, as I would say, if you if you begin to diagram a, a political movement's agendas, priorities, propagandic elements, and you sort of place a, a hierarchy of importance on the on the um, on the set of social issues within MAGA and within nationalism. Pedophilia is extraordinarily high up yeah. on that set. I mean, it's it's like a three, four, five priority yeah. social issue, or at least social appeal, or mm-hmm. sort of motif of a social movement. It's like symbolic. It's very them. symbolic. So they use it heavily. Um, what do you? How do you unpack that? Is is it, is it righteousness? Is is there some cynicism built into it, or is it connected to larger structures like you know, ex- in an extreme sense, QAnon would? would implicate is it connected to larger structures which deserve accountability it that's 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 really hard because part of or me do you just enjoy it well part of me <laughs> says uh, there's a there's a you know i was trained by well first i was trained by catholics um but then i was trained by leftists and part of me says that's just the classic like petty bourgeois fear of the privileges of the aristocracy that ends up stereotyping and scapegoating and this is what they said about gays and this is what they said about Jews and we have to be really careful here. That's one part of me. Another part of me says there have been a lot of revelations about authoritative institutions of our society, whether it be Hollywood or government or you know things like that. And there is this seeming logic within the left-wing culture that controls these institutions that we've already discussed that does make it seem like something about the secularization of our society, particularly over the last hundred years, seems to have liberated this idea of of pedophilia. Or is it at least preparing the ground for well, its li- yeah, liberation? something like that. And that goes all the way back to the idea – and this is another thing I'm sorry I'm agnostic about, but the idea of was Freud – right when he so early in freud's career his idea was that hysterical illness was caused by repressed sexual thoughts mm-hmm. and his first impulse was to seek these repressed thoughts in his patients and they were telling him eventually after somewhat i think sometimes coercive treatments they were telling him that, oh, I was sexually molested as a child. Mm -hmm. And he starts hearing this from so many people that strangely he concludes, well, it can't be the case that this is so common. So in fact, what I'm encountering is fantasy. Mm -hmm. And these are universal fantasies, Hmm. you know? And Freud's in his own way, very conservative. So he, it's a misinterpretation of Freud to say that he wants to liberate sexual desire, but psychoanalysis did a lot to say that you must unrepress yourself. Mm-hmm. And if that's founded on the repression of the testimony of people who had been abused, and that's the inauguration of sexual modernity, are we, you know, are we in trouble? 
Now, just brief digression. QAnon was some kind of um, intelligence agency psyop, I think. Um, so obviously, you and I don't believe in QAnon, right? <laughs> QAnon? <laughs> <laughs> if it was a psyop, for it to be effective, they really did have to be that stupid. <laughs> For it to have been effective, it would have needed to contain at least some grains of truth. Right. Yeah. And these are the grains I'm focused on. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm I'm at my most tolerant self when I'm dealing with with conspiracy theorists. That's yeah. when I bring out my good-hearted liberalism. Right. I say, I know that they have something redeeming. Yeah, no, me They're too. They're worth a seat at the table. Right. <laughs> no, I feel, I usually, when I encounter conspiracy theorists, I'm like, well... Tell me more. The world's pretty fucked up, yeah. I mean. <laughs> I mean, I did have a long-standing uh, personal theoretical um, scheme, which was that I would rather listen to the conspiracy theorists than the mainstream ideas because it was easier to return from the imp the improbability of conspiracy theory back to, if we see it at a point on an axis there's less of a distance and less resistance to return from that conspiratorial point than there is to try to break from the center out to the truth yes that was like a working yeah no i instinctively i feel the exact same yeah. way yeah which you know that gets <laughs> Challenged and upended, and <laughs> right <laughs> as I get older and pay more taxes, but, <laughs> but I think there's some sort of yeah usefulness to that. So, I'm if we go back, if we go back to this novel, which I'm picking up from you, you kind of resent this novel a little bit. I, I you think I, it's a little bit irresponsible. I, and he's not a hero. He's pathetic. Yeah, he's definitely pathetic. I mean, the way Aschenbach ends up is he gets uh, sold on uh, uh, hair dye and makeup by an unscrupulous barber, and he ends up all sort of tarted up, dying on the beach looking at Tadzia. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a pretty pathetic image um, mm -hmm. that you see in the, the – there's a classic film of this book that I don't think works. I, I think the problem with the – when you read the novel and you're in his head, mm -hmm. you're persuaded that everything he's going through is very authentic. Mm -hmm. When you're just watching on screen this old guy creeping after this little kid, it, it right. doesn't really fall short for me. But, um, but yeah, he ends in a pathetic way. Right. I love. I mean, it's a great novel. It's a great work of literature. I think yeah. Thomas Mann is the great one of the greatest novels okay, okay, okay. of the twentieth century. So I'm not. I'm not a philistine. Um, yeah. But I, I have – I did this – this time I read it, I did have – especially when I found out the kid was 10, I thought, is this – You're not ready to justify anything with um, – if it's great art. You're not willing to go all the way. Maybe not all the way, no. There are costs to yes. great art sometimes which outweigh its sublimity. 
And I almost never feel that. <laughs> um, I almost never feel that. I usually take the very hard line that anything. Anything goes. Anything can be redeemed in can be art. Redeemed. Yeah. Um, especially when it's this. When it's Because I hate the avant-garde because they just, uh, oh, here's a pile of dirt on the floor. You know, thanks. Go fuck yourself. But, Jesus, you hate the avant-garde? <laughs> I do hate the avant-garde. Lighten up, man. <laughs> but. You got to lighten up. <laughs> but something like this that's so perfect in form. Mm-hmm. I, I must revere in some oh, sense. Oh, man. But there's so many great novels that aren't about pedophilia, <laughs> you know? Well, that's true. Flip side, there's so many great artists who were pedophiles. Right, or were so, something. Yeah. Were, were Nazis, were, yeah. you know, were, were something. Yeah, who had these pederastic drives. And you point out in your essay, I mean, if you get on the list, Roman Polanski. Yeah. Woody Allen. Yeah. Um, come on, Burroughs. Burroughs, um, yeah. So Gide, one uh, begins to wonder, and I think this is this gets to the big questions of this novel, which it it provokes, and there's a service there, but it's almost too horrifying to answer. To what degree is this, or some variation of it, pederasty, different types of perversion? Total licentiousness, total depravity. To what extent is this not an outgrowth, but a feature of great artistry? Mm-hmm. And to what extent is is certain great works of art they would not be possible without this drive? Yeah, this well, is a question. I'll tell you what I think it's about. Okay. I'll tell you why I think this drive is so common in artists. Yeah, because art stands opposed to nature. And sexually, okay, I know, okay, I know I have these people in my head telling me everything that I'm about to say is wrong. But generally speaking, Mm -hmm. a man, an adult man, and an adult woman come together for the purpose of replicating, reproducing the most natural part of us, which is our biological life. Art standing opposed to nature, the artist criticizing nature, making something better than nature, doesn't want to encounter that animal biological reality. So the only form in which that male artist wants to encounter the feminine is in the not-yet-pubescent boy, where it doesn't have to be implicated in natural reproduction. So it rests on yes. this anti-natural, okay. this misogyny. Oh, misogyny. I think misogyny is Say more. Well, because <laughs> in the sense that – and I'm borrowing here from Camille Polyev, by the way, obviously, um, um, who's accused of being a misogynist for describing this dynamic, for saying that um, art – Standing opposed to nature, mm-hmm. nature is represented by woman. Okay. And procreation. S- procreation, the female. With which we've celebrated on this podcast. Yeah. Um, and so art turns away from fertility, from, okay. from the mother, from the goddess. Speak for yourself. And turns to the beautiful <laughs> young boy because that's a safe Jeez. arena for the feminine. So I think that's why so many artists are pederasts. And I think, I think Polya thought that too. Oh, my God. Gosh. It's a tough one. Oh. We have to read Virginia Woolf, Sam, because because that's where you get a writer who bases her art on 
the the flux, the female flow. So the, you're saying the yeah, ocean sure. of nature. Yeah. Yeah. Flux and female flow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we have some tampon merch coming yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're saying you're basically you're basically making the point about this. I mean, you're saying artifice is a denaturalized instinct. Yeah. And that embeds itself into that embeds itself into sexual pathologies and proclivities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm so saying. So it does become highly creative, or because it is so associated with creativity, like in the novel. Yeah, it's so associated with creativity that. Uh, but I think it's a perversion to which the classical mentality is particularly driven. This idea that you need to create the perfect work of art that's that's not um, that's not uh, chaotic the way nature is. You know, the, the, this Flaubert ideal, this Nabokov okay. ideal, this Greek Platonic ideal. Whereas if you make if you make it okay for yourself to create an art that is chaotic that is disordered that partakes of the the eruptions of nature mm-hmm. you can maybe escape from this and maybe that's why dostoevsky you know or shakespeare or um, so what is you're a describing artist what you're describing is a is a is a truer formulation an ultimate redemption of this chaos through aesthetics yes. what you're describing right right which is an embrace of, or at least not this fear, this this yeah the fear this kills. neurotic fear yeah yeah there's and you know the 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 true human freedom lies I think in the in the recognition that we are abandoned to that and that through that there's limitless uh, possibilities. Mm-hmm. And that no one will, or no one or one thing will resolve it for us, but it is up to us, us, our agencies and techniques to create something. So a certain sense of abandonment Mm -hmm. to this chaos. Yeah. That's, I think, where human freedom lies here. Right, right. And there's great model artists for that particular attitude. And and since I invoked Palia, she does have a reading of this novel in, in her book, Sexual Personae, and she says the plague is the mother goddess's revenge on Aschenbach for pursuing this beautifully formed boy. It's her way of saying, no, you're in my world. You're not in this world of perfect forms. 